Bilingual in America. Tunei el loga fi America. Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Ser bilingue en America. Hi, I'm Suzanne Lasser. I'm Yarina Sancion. And this is Bilingual in America. We are so honored to be joined today by Claribel Gonzalez, who has had various hats throughout her career, but most recently she is with the Auburn Seneca office offering staff development and her pearls of wisdom. And she's been featured in various books with her technique of sketch notes. So Claribel, welcome. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much, Suzanne and Jarina. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. And it's overwhelming. Like when I hear, yeah, a, a lot of hats, right? <laughs> but I'm sure all of those hats have led you right to the very point that you're at today. But we always like to start and give our listeners a little bit of context. So if you could share with our listeners any key aspects of your bilingual journey. Absolutely. Um, so my parents are from Puerto Rico and they came to the United States when I was in my mom's stomach. <laughs> so I have five older sisters and they came over here and it was tough, right? To be able to kind of be in, in systems and in foreign places, right? That you really don't know. Luckily for us, we had a, a wonderful uh, Hispanic community. And so in thinking about going to school, I was in ESL and bilingual classes. I think, you know, I think back at my experiences and I'm so fortunate to be able to have been in bilingual education. So many individuals have horror stories of, you know, their languages kind of um, being pushed to the side and um, being pushed to only speak English and, and struggling with that. And thinking about my own experiences, bilingual education uh, has been really the catalyst for being where I am right now. I, again, was stamped uh, ESL and navigating that was challenging as well. Because of course, e even now in 2023, we think about all these deficits connected to that label. I went through bilingual education all throughout middle school and never in a million years did I think that I would become a bilingual educator. I didn't even know that that was a possibility. It was introduced to me by my advisor when I was really thinking through what do I want to do, right? As I finished my bachelor's and into my master's. And so I didn't even know that was a possibility, which I think about now. And, and after I finished that, I went into teaching fourth and fifth grade in bilingual spaces. And I've been an instructional coach for a district. Um, and right now, as you mentioned, I'm a coordinator for Arburn West. And so in that, I wear a lot of different hats. One of them is being staff developer. I'm an instructional coach, working with administrators and teachers. I also love to add that I'm raising bilingual kids, which is an added layer to all of this. And so in the journey, in thinking through bilingualism in my life, I get to see it from so many different perspectives. And it's great, but sometimes it's disheartening, right? To, to think about, again, 2023 and some of the labels and myths connected to bilingualism. It takes so long to change and shift mindsets, I find. And how you got to the work that you do is so important. I find it also interesting that you're the youngest of six siblings, because normally the youngest doesn't get ESL or ENL support 
because they've had all these siblings before them. But I love that means that your family made a commitment to raise you all to be bilingual, multilingual. And I really love that that happened in your case, that 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 was so important for your family that they really maintained that. Thank you so much for bringing that up because that's something that I always make a point to highlight that I was the only one out of my family that wasn't born on the island, but Puerto Rico was my home at, at home, right? In Buffalo, New York. My mom was all about the culture and the language. And I think that that's the foundation, right? That I hope to be able to give to, to my kids to love our language, to, to not be ashamed. Because oftentimes, you know, we are in the in these systems and we feel othered, we feel different. Um, also blessed to have had a community that really pushed bilingual education and language and culture and celebrated all of it. And so thank you so much for bringing that up because oftentimes you don't see that anymore. Right. And it's, it's hard raising bilingual kids. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, even with my daughter, she's five. And so you know, we, we have to acknowledge the language of power in the United States, right? Thinking about what are her experiences going to be like, she won't be in bilingual education. So really thinking about that as a, as a parent is tough. Absolutely. Uh, and if we could just backtrack a little bit for anyone who might not know what Arburn stands for, could you just define that for us so that we're really clear on the context for today? Absolutely. Arburn stands for the Regional Bilingual Education Resource Network, and we're a technical assistance center. There are various throughout New York State. And so our mission is really to support administrators, teachers, districts all throughout with anything connected to multilingual learners. So your whole life, your professional life, your home life, your recreational life is all about multilingual learning and supporting this beautiful mission that we can be a country of multilingual learners. I love that. Absolutely. Yes. Claribel, as you were talking with Yarina, I'm thinking about another conversation we had with Jesus Cervantes and talks about how the responsibility within dual language programs is that we elevate the status of the second language to be that on par of English, right? That one should not be superior to the other. That is just something that is so important because otherwise it does get, get lost in, in that work that we're doing each day with students to help them develop a, a sense of bilingualism, biculturalism. So as we think a little bit deeper about that, maybe you can share with our listeners how your work as a staff developer with the Arbor and as its coordinator has really informed what you do in terms of your sketch notes, right? This creative side of you. Yes. So I've always been a doodler. And so I used to get in trouble for doodling because it's been perceived as like mindless. You're not paying attention, right? Uh, you need to focus. And so doodling has always been my way of kind of like following along with conversations. And I would even argue that we do it now as adults, right? When we're in meetings, right? You might see somebody like doodle a little flower in the corner. <laughs> Again, really thinking through our perceptions and how research has really pushed back as, at these uh, perspectives of it's mindless. No, it's thinking, right? Always been a doodler. So when I was trying to navigate all of the research and all of the books. I'm, I'm all about um, keeping up with the research and reading. I 
try to find a way to synthesize all of this dense information that was presented in front of me. That was kind of like my outlet. Like I grabbed a paper and pencil and I would just draw to be able to really think through these ideas that I was reading. Another layer of it was that I was presenting these concepts to teachers and to administrators, right? And so oftentimes we don't have the time to look through the research papers and to read the books. And so I thought to myself, how do I make it so that it's accessible and that I can offer a piece of art or something that can make people more interested in this, right? Specifically thinking about dual language education. That was one layer of it. The other layer of it was that I was growing very frustrated. (laughs) And I think we can all agree in education. And this was my outlet, right? I remember my first sketch note was on the pillars of dual language education. You know, when we're in these spaces, oftentimes or sometimes individuals might make decisions based on the monolingual perspective. And so this was my way of just kind of, again, putting a pen or pencil or marker uh, to paper and really thinking through these abstract ideas sometimes to be able to give access to educators, administrators, and parents, and even students. Yes. You know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about how to the human soul, drawings always speak to us so loudly, right? This is why we've seen them in magazines and newspapers and cartoons. And uh, even uh, when people have taken political stands, like this is an important piece of how our brain works and how we could really cement some of the ideas that we're processing into understanding. And while it sounds like a simple thing, like a sketch note, a drawing, it is so much more than just that. Like in a sketch note, you can encapsulate so many key points and walk away with this grand understanding and then internalize and synthesize it so that you can then use it as a, a, a platform to jump from. It's so powerful. Absolutely. And the reality is that we live in a very visual world. Like I look at my five-year-old and I'm like, my goodness, the fact that she knows the icons for different things in an iPad, when we pass by Target, she knows she can't read yet, but she knows that that's Target, that's Starbucks, right? The ways that, you know, these icons kind of morph into our lives and even, you know, for those that are uh, Latino, Hispanic, you know, the, the icon of a chancla the icon of a VIX, right? So those <laughs> things have so much meaning and perhaps even more that we could even say in written word. And if you think back, right, the first form of communication was through visual representation, right? And when we think about our children, what do we tell them? Draw it out, sketch it out. We'll add the words later. And so there is so much value to it, right? And for some reason, once we get into the written word, we there is a tendency to minimize the value of the visual support. But if you look at you, best practices or UDL, right, providing access points, we, there are so many different ways. It's not just about writing. It's, it's wonderful, right, that you have shifted the way that adults, teachers, parents, and even students are thinking about the power of creativity and sketch notes. Yes, absolutely. And and to your point, I think that it's something that 
perhaps some teachers say, you know what, I don't have the time and I get it. I was in the classroom and sometimes we feel like we have to continue the pace. And, you know, that's great for my entering and emerging kids, or that's great if you're in the primary spaces. But right now I need to teach these kids content or X or whatever the case might be. And so I think about that a lot. Like, what are we missing when we don't offer all of these multimodalities that are available and that students are probably doing on their own? Absolutely. So let's just go a little bit deeper and talk about your process for designing visual notes for anybody who wants to give it a go and really make this part of their practice. Yes. And Jarina, thank you for saying that it is, it might look simple, but it's very complex yeah. uh, because that's the conversation that I always have with educators and even with students when I'm trying to, you know, when I'm doing a demo or encouraging them to, to kind of uh, sketch it out or draw it out. And so really, uh, you know, my process is all over the place in a good way. Uh, I think about something that I'm very passionate about. Usually my sketch notes focus on books that I'm reading, frameworks that I find amazing, or even breaking down certain theories in education. I also have done sketch notes on even our culture, the sayings that we say in, in Puerto Rico, uh, in Latin America. So my sketch notes are very personal to me. And that's something that I really want to highlight that the sketch notes that you see out there, you, some individuals might look at it and are like, oh my gosh, this is a mess. It's too much. But it's centering the meaning making of the individual. Um, and so I think that that's one of the things that we really need to highlight as we think through these sketch notes. And so that's what I mean when I say my sketch notes, when you look at them, they might seem like they're all over the place because it's really thinking through drawings. The approach that I take, I mean, I followed uh, many individuals like Suni Brown and you know, really thinking about the doodle revolution and sketch noting. And so thinking about what is the, the, the main idea? What is it that I want to be able to showcase individuals in this? I start thinking about ways to represent it. And that's where it becomes very difficult because when we're thinking about things like communication, things like knowledge or feelings, right? Even if we were to bring it into the classroom. How do you depict photosynthesis? Even thinking about the ways that we utilize images in the classroom, oftentimes we do do that with multilingual learners, but sometimes images, you know, are tough to be able to represent uh, whatever it is that you want to present. So I think about main ideas. I think about connecting the main ideas. And then I think about ways that I can represent that. In a nutshell, um, that's kind of like my process, but really thinking through what I'm passionate about. And I think you can see that through my sketch notes. We certainly hear it in your share. And I think the key points that you pointed out is that it's very personal. It has to be rooted in your passion so that it becomes your meaning making machine. And then connecting from the main idea, having the main idea be the focus and then some connecting points. It doesn't seem like there's like, this one sketch note for all, right? It's going to be a very personal experience because it has to be meaning making for me. Right? Absolutely. Yes. And so that's why when I think about sketch noting, again, really thinking, pushing back at the idea that it's just simple and that how do we as educators 
bring this into the classroom to be able to think through, again, what are we missing as educators? Um, if we provide uh, the traditional form of assessment, if you will, what are we missing? You know, everything is so personal when we think about sketch noting, much like writing. One of the things that I advocate for is really thinking through this idea of simplicity, right? That the only the only way that I can understand what students are understanding is through just the written word or a multiple choice exam. So that's one of the things that I've been advocating for is, is sketch noting and visual literacy specifically in the classroom. Mm. That's a great segue into another topic we can talk about briefly is where do you see sketch notes fitting into the broader assessment, right, conversation? And why is it even more important for our emerging bilinguals and our uh, multilingual learners when we think about this shift in assessment that we hope to see? Yes. One of the things that I think about is what is the purpose of assessment as educators? I know that when I was in the classroom, it was a lot of pressure. And I know that even working with, with uh, administrators and teachers, it's that pressure of, oh my goodness, I have to cover this content because a test is coming. But really, what is an assessment for? Mm-hmm. For me, is to be able to really think through what students know and work from there, right? And and think about how can this inform instruction and how can I really tap into what students are passionate about, their experiences. And I don't know if we always see that in traditional assessment or in writing. Um, that's one of the things that I always think about alongside teachers. And so we know that visuals enhance memory, Um, even regardless of artistic talent. I hear a lot of individuals say, no, Claribel, this is great for you. You have the skills for it, but I can't do that. Regardless of artistic talent, it's going to enhance your memory. Uh, There's greater recall. There's going to be greater comprehension when we think about visuals in the brain. Again, when we think about the doodle and how that's had such a negative um, kind of like perspective in education or in classrooms, right? I love what Sunny Brown says. And she says that the doodle, she's redefined it to make spontaneous marks to help yourself think. And that's what we want our students to be able to do. We want them to be critical thinkers. I think about Again, assessments, why are we doing them? What purpose do they serve? How am I utilizing the data, right? Are they authentic uh, to really tell me what the students uh, know and their experiences? And I also think about this in terms of translanguaging, right? So translanguaging is supposed to really think through the full linguistic repertoire of students. But I also love how individuals like Custers in their article really focus on semiotics and translanguaging, really thinking about what students know linguistically, but what happens to that sign and non-linguistic representations that can give me so much information that I might not know otherwise. Really, when I think about assessments in multilingual spaces, it's about centering the meaning making and giving educators an in where they probably wouldn't know otherwise. I also love, and I have to to mention her book, April Baker Bell, Linguistic Justice. She also talks about the power of drawing and how uh, she says that with visual texts and drawings, 
we might be able to really dig deeper into the students' beliefs, their values, their perceptions that can be captured through written communication. Even in her exercise that she did with students, she was able to really think through and see the, the students kind of like their, their perceptions where a written text couldn't have told her that. So I always give Dr. Baker Bell a shout out because I love her book. And, and I think about all of these researchers. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I do what I do as a student, as a teacher, giving me so many different perspectives as a parent, you start to really uh, push back at some of these deficit perspectives that really position our students as not knowing anything. It's so important to dispel all of those belief systems. And as I was listening to you, um, share, I was thinking, you know, we do so many things at the start of the school year to get to know our students. Wouldn't it be beautiful if the first getting to know experience slash assessment slash whatever we want to call it is a doodle about what's important to you and who you are and to have that touchstone, like maybe you do that at the start of the year at the middle of the year, how have you, you know, a reflection one. And then at the end, you know, we keep talking about how it's so important to get to know our students, how beautiful it would be if we could use this to get to know them in a deeper way, other than those typical interview questions that we do or questionnaires, you know, to just really delve deep. I'm just thinking about the endless possibilities that we could use sketch notes to really go deeper and deeper. I, Absolutely. And I, you know, I encourage educators because oftentimes when I'm having conversations with them, they're like, oh my gosh, Claribel, another thing that I have to learn that I have to do. And sometimes it's just starting small. What about introducing picture books to students, even if they're in juniors in high school, it's okay. Right. Really analyzing what the pictures are telling us. Right. And again, really pushing back at this idea that pictures and drawings only live in primary uh, spaces or with our entering and emerging students. Another thing is that, you know what, sketch notes are wonderful, but they're not the only thing, right? When we think about visual literacy, what other things are at, at our disposal that we don't have to relearn to be able to really center students' motivation and experiences? Another example that I can give you is, you know, I've been working with educators on coding. And so really my passion for uh, visual literacy and images and really digging deeper into that semiotic world uh, has led me to coding. And so I've been utilizing Scratch Junior with educators to really, again, to give students another uh, tool to be able to showcase what they know. We've utilized this to be able to summarize books that they've read, stories. Again, I love your idea of a get to know me. How cool. I know so many students, they, they do a scratch junior about themselves, right? Again, really thinking about how we are kind of defining these practices in the classroom and how sometimes they fall under a bucket of enrichment, or you know what, that's great, but I'll do it when I have time, or that's great, but that's very juvenile. And I would encourage you to try it. Try a sketch note. Try grabbing an iPad and doing a Scratch Junior project or a Scratch project in your computer. Um, you would struggle or, you know, you would find it very challenging. Again, thinking about what we're missing when we're not looking at the entire child. And 
recentering, you know, multilingual ways of knowing and ways of being. Yeah, the opportunity for rigor is definitely there. That is the the craft of, of being a skilled educator saying, okay, how can I level this up instead of always thinking, oh, this is something that's dumbed down or that's too juvenile, right? It's too easy. So that is the challenge for us. And as you're talking, right, I'm thinking, I hope that Alicia Baez and Dr. Alvarez are listening because we would love to be able to, to change some of the ways that our students are assessed each year in terms of their literacy and knowledge. So hopefully in time. And Um, I know that that they're working very hard to be able to really think through assessments. And so really thinking about the power of project-based assessments and inquiry, right? That research has demonstrated time and time again that are so beneficial for all students, but specifically for our multilingual students. Um, I also think about the added layer of equity that permeate educational conversations. Can we really say that we're advocating for equity if we're not providing students a way of demonstrating their knowledge? Mm. Good point. Oh my goodness. My heart is so full. I know you've been featured in many educational books. Could you just share with us a couple of those books? Absolutely. And I think this is a perfect time to give a huge shout out to uh, Andrea Honigsfeld. Yes. Um, because I'm telling you, like social, the power of social media. So like I mentioned, I love to read and this is my way. This is my therapy, if you will. So I always do sketch notes on things that I'm reading or again, really like theories on dual language education. One of the things that I didn't mention was that I would share them with educators uh, that I work with. And they were like, oh my gosh, Caribel, thank you so much. This has helped me connect some concepts or this clarified something for me. So I started sharing it on social media. And so that's how I was able to connect with Dr. Honigsfeld. She reached out to me. She had so many projects going on. And one of them was titled From Equity Insights to Action. A huge shout out to Dr. Honigsfeld, to Dr. Dove and the rest of the team because this was during the pandemic. And so really thinking about, wow, how do we push back at thinking about academic uh, spaces, right? And so it was really interesting to be able to have you know, a professor, an author, a researcher reach out to me and say, hey, would you be able to incorporate some of the sketch notes into this book? She took a risk and I always tell her that because oftentimes when we're reading these books, they're very dense and individuals might not be able to access them, right? The sketch notes are embedded within each chapter and they kind of give you a glimpse of what's to come. I've also done uh, co-planning, five essential practices to integrate curriculum and instruction for English language learners. I've done some of my illustrations there. And most recently, another shout out to Joan Lachance. She's an angel. One of her ideas was really thinking about collaboration and co-teaching for dual language learners. And so thinking about how we can transform programs for multilingualism and equity. There goes that word again, right? Equity. And what does that mean specifically in dual language spaces? Um, So those are a few of the books that I've been able to work with authors to really synthesize the information and include my illustrations in them. And Yarina and I feel super fortunate to have had conversations, right? With Andrea, with Joan, with Alicia, with, you know, Dr. Alvarez. And so we have to continue, right, to, to work collectively to bring about the changes that we know are so important. And I know we're going to wrap up in a second, 
but I also want to make sure that our listeners are aware that if they are intrigued to learn more about this, you will be at La Cosecha this year. Ian and I will be there as well, but we want to make sure our listeners know that they can also look for your session. Yes, I'm super excited to be uh, presenting at La Cosecha, and I'm so excited to meet you in person and meet so many people that I've connected with, you know, on social media. So yes, so many great things to come. Yes. Why don't you just tell our listeners where they can find you so that they can, you know, see some more examples of your work. Yes, you can follow me on Twitter, or I guess they changed it. So I'm supposed to be saying X now. I'm not sure. (laughs) My handle is at Claribel716. Well, we thank you, Claribel Gonzalez, for your stance in your own personal life and out in the world and for everything that you do for multilingual learners. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you for devoting so much of your passion into this project and into your work because without that, what fuels us, right? I have great respect for that. So thank you so much. Thank you. I want to thank you ladies because, you know, it's wonderful to be able to center the the experiences of individuals and that's exactly what you guys do. Uh, so I want to thank you too. Thank you for opening up this beautiful space to me. Today's charla with Claribel was a first for us in that we on Bilingual in America have not really spoken before about visual literacy and its place within the multilingual learner bilingual conversation. During season four, Yarina and I invite you to continue to learn alongside of us. Speaking of learning, we invite you to join me and Yarina along with Claribel and the entire dual language education New Mexico family at this year's La Cosecha Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We will be there November 8th through 11th, and we hope that you can join us. Until next time, continue to speak your beauty. Thank you for your interest in the stories we share by sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm, Bilingual in America, and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast. You are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback, and we appreciate your support. Follow us, like us, share us.